This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. We're going to give this a whirl and see what happens here with, with the scripture. I gave uh, Brother Yuri uh, before the service all the scriptures that I was going to use in rounding out the basis of Second uh, Peter tonight. And... Uh, and then I turned it over and I said, now, if we get through with all of that, and I gave him another great big workout, I said, these are the verses I'm going to use in Revelation if we get that far. He said, man, you go keep the people here two hours. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, we have to be done by 8 o'clock. So let's get back to work. And as we look tonight at verse number 7, I, I really don't want to take the time to go back and, and to... Uh, recreate all of the steps that we have taken thus far. It's been a wonderful study, and uh, if you have been plugged into this, you have learned uh, a, a, an ocean full of uh, spiritual truths. So, where we left off, now we find ourselves in verse 7, and it says this, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store. Let, let me just reiterate something here. There's coming a day when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, the word of God says this, John, and as we will read in just tonight or next Wednesday night, but John, the apostle, was on the island of Patmos. And in the spirit God gave him this revelation, and uh, he begins to write, and he says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth was passed away, and there was no more sea. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So there's coming a day when the earth as we know it will, will no longer exist. I emphasize something to you tonight, that this world is full of corruption. It's full of decay, deterioration. It's full of death. It's full of sin. It's full of turmoil and chaos. This kind of environment cannot go through the endless ages of eternity. And although I do believe that in these end times that we live, especially with the maniacs that we have in control of nuclear power. I do believe that it's very, very possible. And even beyond the possibilities, I think it's probably likely. Because we're dealing with demon-possessed people on this planet who have absolutely no regard for human life, only to advance their agenda and their cause. And so let me, let me say with great conviction that, that I believe that it is likely that somewhere on this earth 
And, and I emphasize this because I believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. And we'll get into that imminent return thing when we get into Revelation, meaning he could come at any moment. Having said that, if that imminent return of the Lord is not in the next five minutes, the next five days, the next five weeks, the next five years, I don't know. The Bible says no man knows the day nor the hour when the Son of Man shall come. None of us know. Only the Father which is in heaven. The way things are headed now when you have such confusion and chaos, and I remind you of this. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. And the world is saturated with confusion today. Lunatics rule and reign and govern over a button that could create catastrophic results with nuclear warfare. And I do believe that it's likely at some point on this globe that somebody will be crazed enough, egotistic enough, possessed enough to not care the results of what's going to happen. And it's, it's likely that because we live in a world, it's a ticking time bomb with nuclear destruction. But here's the thing that we have absolute 100% guarantee of. And that is this, there is no button on this earth and there's no demon-possessed individual on this earth. There's no chaos on this earth that's going to destroy this earth. Because this particular passage of Scripture gives us the affirmation of that. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, and I'm not speaking tonight on the three heavens. You know basically what they are. The atmosphere where the clouds are, and then the galaxies, the sun, moon, and stars, and the third heaven where God's throne is. And so there are different heavens. The earth, the Bible says, but the heavens and the earth which are now. And I remind you again that there's coming a new day. There's coming a new heaven and a new earth. But now, and that's what Peter is bringing our attention to, by the same word, look at this, are kept in store. Now look at this. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so I want you to think about it this way, that the same word of God in creation, when God stepped out into the portals of nothing, and he just began to speak, let there be light. And one thing after another began to explode after that into existence. And the same word of God in creation that kept the oceans within its boundaries before the flood, is the same word of God, the same God who is holding back the fires of judgment right now. I'm sure you've wondered why God hasn't, in his holiness and his righteousness, lowered the boom on this earth and on God, ungodly men. You know, sometimes things provoke us to question God. Why do you tolerate this? Why do you allow this and that to go on? 
But the thing that I want you to see here are these words kept in store. That means until God is ready. Now, there's another interesting word in this passage, and that is the word perdition. And the word perdition in this passage of Scripture is it's talking about destruction. And so all of this is in reference to the events that are going to surround. Listen carefully. We'll get to it in the latter chapters of Revelation. But it all surrounds the great white throne. And I taught you well throughout the years about the various aspects of different judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, as soon as the rapture takes place, we will meet the Lord in the air. And that's when we will go through as believers the judgment seat of Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 teaches us how that we're going to be judged and how our rewards will be given, the rewards that will abide and those that will be consumed with fire. But this passage of Scripture is talking about judgment and how God right now by his omnipotent power, is holding back his wrath, is holding back his judgment. But these words, this particular passage, is in reference to the great white throne. In fact, I want you to see this. Fellas, if you get this on the screen for me, in Revelation chapter 20, I want us to look. Let's begin with verse 11. There you go. And I saw a great white throne. We'll read through verse 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now again, when, as I read this, understand the great white throne is the judgment for the lost, unbelievers. This is not where the saved, the believers, the church will be judged. That's in the air. This great white throne judgment is, is after the millennium, and that's, that's several miles down the road. But so the verse says this, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up their dead, which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So going back to 2 Peter 3, verse number 7, this, when you read this, that the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same order, kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment. This is talking about the great white throne judgment. And uh, the destruction, that word perdition, destruction of ungodly men. All right, now verse number 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So what Peter reminds us of here tonight is this, that God does not compute time like we do. We have to grasp that truth. And sometimes it's hard to wrap our finite minds around that because he is infinite and we are finite. We can only grasp logic and sometimes logic in its best degree, but that's as far as we can go, things that make sense to us. Things that doesn't make sense to us, I can assure you, makes 
perfect sense to God. So on God's calendar, according to the word, the way that God computes time, not the way we do, Brother David spoke a few minutes ago about time change coming up this weekend, and then when we get into fall, we'll fall back. Time has a way of changing. Uh, sometimes February has 28 days in it. Sometimes months have 30, sometimes 31. Time is all kinds of things to us. The hours on the watch, when we go to work, when we wake up, when we go to bed, all kinds of things are affected by the watch, the clock on the wall. God doesn't compute time like that. So on God's calendar, if, if you look at this and take it literally, which we have to, this is not figuratively, this is literally. On God's calendar, based upon his time, Jesus has only been ascended back to the Father a little over two days. You get this truth? Forty days after the resurrection, he ascended his uh, he assembled his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's where he gave the Great Commission, go ye and all the world and preach the gospel and so forth. And then the cloud began to take him up. You know what the angel said, you men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come again in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. When he ascended on the 40th day after his resurrection, according to the scripture and the way God computes time, he has only been gone two days. Now, that's, that's something to wrap our minds around. But here's the thing that we need to get, and maybe this will help us uh, with that a little bit. God is definitely not locked into the sequence of time the way we calculate it. Sometimes when we look at time and we compare spiritual things with spiritual things, we have a tendency, I believe, especially in our times of desperation, to kind of respond like this. God, where are you? I'm in a 911 thing here, Lord, and you know it and I know it. And so sometimes when we feel like God is moving way too slow for us because life now for us is just at a fast pace. And isn't it amazing how technology has brought us to a place where everything is just about push button? Which means that every time we think something, all we got to do is push a button, and there it is. I mean, you think about all the, all the technologies that are there today that it's at the touch of a button. And if we're not careful, we will start treating God like he is nothing more than a button. And when we push the button, we expect him to be there. Now, I can promise you, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But God is not our magic genie. No matter what the desperation is of the trouble and trials in our life, believe me, he is there. He sees the need before we even have a need. He sees the need before we know we have a need. We're never out of his sight. The disciples rowing the boat on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus on the other side of the mountain looking down is crystal clear proof of this. But the thing is, if we're not careful in the moments of our desperation, our troubles and our trials, we have a tendency, I think, sometimes to think that God is just way too slow. But when he looks at time, we know that he's right on time. Now look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And as I have 
I believe in my own estimation taught you so well. And there's a particular verse. I don't have it written down for the fellows back there in our media department. By the way, they're doing an outstanding job. They get these scriptures up here for me just like that. I commend them. I thank them for that. All the work they do, getting these lights and sound and every, uh, all the scriptures, it's just amazing what they do. But I want you to look at this word here because the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. I don't have this scripture written down for these guys, but there's a passage of scripture in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. One thing about God's personality and his character and his righteousness and hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie. He cannot lie. The integrity of this Bible hinges upon this truth. If God lied about one thing, how could we trust him in anything? So we have to understand that he cannot, according to Scripture, he cannot lie. Now, so he has given us promise after promise after promise. Now look at it. The Lord is not slack. And that word slack means this. God is not delaying. You know, God doesn't operate like this. For example, he knows the day. He knows the hour. When he will signal his son Jesus, he will signal the archangel Michael to sound the trumpet, which will awaken the dead in Christ, and we will meet Jesus the Lord in the air. God knows the day, and I can assure you, he is not in heaven continually changing the day based upon earthly economics in the hands of evil, wicked men. He knows the day. It is set in stone. God's, God's not up in heaven, running heaven based upon what we do or what we don't do. God has it. It's his eternal plan, and God is very precise with it. Do you remember the story in John chapter 11 when, when Lazarus had died? And Mary and Martha, they got all knotted up because Jesus, where is he? They sent word, and Jesus is taking his time. He's performing this miracle. He's talking to this person. And they're, they're frantic, and they're saying, when Jesus showed up, Lord, if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. And so, sometimes in our panic, we can put God in this box and, and feel that he should be running the earth and running our life according to our perfect will and our own suggestive times. But don't ever think that God can operate like that. God is not too slow. He is not too old. He is right on time. Now, this verse also uses this word. Look at it very carefully, the word long-suffering. You might want to underline that because this is talking about the patience of God. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in here tonight that's not thankful that God has shown and demonstrated patience with each and every one of us? Patience. There's an old song that says, he's still working on me. It took him just a week to make the sun and the stars, Jupiter and Mars, how loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. That's a wonderful little tune. I like that song. 
But here's the thing. This is talking, this long suffering here is talking about his patience. And God's timing is not measured by our days. God's timing is not measured by our centuries, but by his divine purpose. And I love the part that says here, look at it very, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. He is not willing. Now this nips the hyper-Calvinist right in the bud. And I emphasize hyper-Calvinist. There's, there are several degrees of Calvinism. We're not a Calvinistic church. We're not hyper-Calvinist. We're not Calvin. We're not Calvin anything. In fact, if your name is Calvin, change it. <laughs> Sometimes I make my own self laugh. But, but that's the thing. We're not Calvinist. And the Calvinists, they hinge their entire doctrine on predestination. God picked this one to go to heaven. He picked this one to go to hell. I can assure you, God's not up there playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo with any of us. He gave his life for the world. God so loved the world. And so that's, that's incredible. Now, I'm thankful that God's love reaches out to all men. And here's the thing. And my rebuttal and, and, and my refusing to accept an ounce of Calvinism is this. God's love never saves people against their will. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so as real as hell is, God has never had a desire to send people there. The Scripture's clear. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now the day of the Lord in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements, look at this. This is, this is almost nuclear in itself. Shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, something interesting here about the day of the Lord. There are various days referred to in the Bible. The day that we're living in right now, if you want to know the biblical name of the day and time which we live right now, it is simply man's day. It's the day when men think that they're in control and that they are superior and that they have arrived and they have all the answers to everything. It's not only referred to the time which we live right now as man's day, but it's also referred to as the day of salvation. That's where we are right now, the day of salvation. In fact, I want to give you a scripture on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 2. Paul is writing, and he said, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation. That's where we are right now. We're living in the day and the time where men and women can be saved. The wooing of the Holy Spirit is breathing conviction on this planet. And there are people every day. You saw sitting here Sunday morning, if you were in the service, seven people raise their hand to follow the Lord in salvation. Fourteen people got in the pool to be baptized following Lord and believers' baptism. I'm, I will tell you this, that the spirit of the living God is moving all across this planet, and he's breathing conviction on human, uh, human souls, humanity. But look at this. 
That's where we are right now. Not, not only man's day, not only the day of salvation, that's where we are right now. But the next day, beyond man's day, the day of salvation, the day of grace, this is where we are, the age of grace, the next day to come is the day of Christ. And the day of Christ is the rapture. I want to get these scriptures real quick here because I only have 10 minutes tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 8. Look at this. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about the rapture when we meet Jesus in the air. Another scripture in reference to this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day talking about the day of Christ, shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. Now let me emphasize, there will not be one lost person at this judgment. This is the judgment seat of Christ. It's for believers. A final verse on this particular day, the day of Christ, this 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 14. The word says, as also as ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. So keep this in mind. We're right now. Where are we at in, in time as far as God computes it? We're in man's day or the day of salvation. This is the day, the age where people can be saved. When the church moves out of the church age, the day of grace Every person that has heard a clear presentation of the gospel will not be able to be saved, but right now we can be. But this passage is talking about the day of Christ, when the rapture takes place. And when this happens, when the rapture takes place, the world is going to move into the time where the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the day of Jacob's trouble. It will take us into the tribulation. Now, not when I say us, not, no born-again believer will ever have to go through the tribulation. God is going to spare us and save us from that. But there's a scripture in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse number 7. It says, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time of the tribulation. But he, talking about the believer, he shall be saved out of it. No Christian, born again child of God in the church age, will ever have to go through that. Now, will there be people who turn to God who's never heard a clear presentation of the gospel, another message altogether, another day? I don't want to get bogged down with that. But there will be people saved in the tribulation who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. So I don't want to confuse you with that. But anybody that's heard the gospel will not be able and said no to the Holy Ghost will not be able to be saved. The world will go through a time of tribulation, but according to the word of God, the prophet Jeremiah, but he shall be saved out of it. All right, the next day. So we're talking about man's day, the day of salvation. We're talking about the day of Christ. The next notable day after the day of Christ is the day of the Lord. And this is first mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse number 12. And the day of the Lord is the revelation. Look at this. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, 
and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. The rapture is not the revelation. The revelation comes seven years after the rapture. Now, the day of the Lord, it's an expression that takes place that occurs over 20 times in the Old Testament. In fact, those books are Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Malachi. And we find this reference, the day of the Lord, in the Old Testament. Now, the expression of the day of the Lord occurs four times in the New Testament. Real quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. All right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 2. That ye be soon not shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. All right? This is another verse. That's, that one should have been inserted in the other. Look at this here, Revelation 1.10. Let me just give you this last one here because I have to move on quick. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. So again, we cannot confuse the revelation, the day of the Lord, with the rapture of the day of Christ. Here's the thing. The revelation that takes place that begins seven years after the tribulation, it begins the millennial reign of Christ. Do you know what the millennial reign of Christ? Do you know what I mean by when I say millennial? The 1,000-year reign. And it's interesting that the millennium, when Jesus comes back in the revelation, according to Zechariah chapter 4, verse number 14, the scripture says, In that day his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, the mountain will cleave unto. Jesus will lead the host of heaven down the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, will cross the Kidron Valley, will go through the eastern gate, and Jesus will rule and reign upon the throne of David, according to the scriptures, for 1,000 years. And so remember this now. It's interesting because when he comes back in the Revelation and all of this is happening simultaneously, he defeats the Antichrist. So in all actuality, the millennium begins with a battle, begins with a war. He comes to defeat the Antichrist. And at the end of the 1,000 years, the millennium ends with a battle. So it begins with one and it ends with one. But notice something else here. One of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Scripture, this happens at the end of the millennial age in verse number 11. Seeing then that after these things shall be dissolved, and we have just read those, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation? And that's talking about our behavior or our lifestyle. And this is a warning. It's an admonishment to God's people that we need to really be true blue, if I could use those words quickly here. Three minutes left to go tonight. And sometimes I think we're prone to neglect God's warnings. He, he, the Holy Spirit is, is a constant blinking yellow caution light in our life. I don't have time to deliver and to develop this particular point to you like I would like tonight in these last moments, but I will say this, that 
millions of people every day who have been exposed to the truth, who have been under the conviction of the Spirit of God, get that warning constantly. It's the wooing of the Spirit. It's the moving of the Spirit. Sometimes he is totally ignored. Sometimes he's totally shunned, disrespected, and we keep running through God's blinking caution lines, which is, in our world, the Holy Spirit. If I could go back to one Old Testament illustration tonight, it revolves around Lot and the poor decisions that he made. When you study his life, and I believe the Spirit of God was moving through Abraham, it was working in his own personal life as well, but he, he barely, listened to this, he Lot barely escaped being consumed in the fires and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But even after that, I mean, he just barely got out of Dodge, so to speak. But after the Spirit of God had delivered him in almost an 11th hour type of thing, you would think that the average person who would have been that close to death, that close to destruction, and at the same time counted as righteous, had a relationship with God, and you know the Spirit of God, the hand of God was working in your life, but when you get to a crisis like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, you would think that somebody that was that close to being annihilated, that they would back up a little bit and say, well, man, God, thank you. Thank you, God in heaven. I'm not going to do that anymore. How many of you have ever known somebody that said this? I grew up. In the, in the late 50s and early 60s, and back in the day when I was growing up, one of the things that was happening readily and steadily, which we don't see much of it anymore today, and it's a shame, but in the day and times that I grew up, people were surrendering to go to the mission field left and right. They, they were saying, yes, 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 yes. I'll go, I'll go. And, and in that movement... I've heard this so many times. I don't put any investment in it anymore. People have said this. Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I will be a missionary. If you get me out of this mess, I, I will cross the ocean. I will go to the Amazon. I, I will swim with piranhas. God, if you just get me out of this mess, I will go. I've seen people stand at the pulpit when it was their turn to sing specials and cry and give a 15-minute testimony. I've surrendered all to Jesus. He brought me out of this mess. And I will tell you, I, when I look back on all of those days now, I can probably not count three of them. And, and my life was saturated with those kind of things. But do you know somebody that, that said this, God, if you get me out of this mess right now, I promise you I won't go back. I won't do it again. Our time is gone, but let me remind you of a scripture. The Bible says this, it's better not to make a vow to God than to make one and break it.
You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at bufordroadbaptistchurch.com.